from a secret location in room 100 of 540 Jack Gibbs Boulevard, this is Craft. I'm your host, Doug Dangler. Jason Gay is the sports columnist for the Wall Street Journal and says that it is a weird little, a weird sports column and recently released a new book called Little Victories, Perfect Rules for Imperfect Living. This book makes several rather shocking claims. It will, quote, not make you rich in 24 hours or even 72 hours. It will not cause you to lose 80 pounds in a week. And this book has no abdominal exercises, which is amazing in a, uh, in a book uh, about rules for living. So welcome to Craft, Jason Kidd. Uh, thanks so much for having me. And I apologize in advance for the lack of abdominal exercises. I cannot guarantee you a six-pack. Oh, if wow. you read this book, I figure it's just better to be honest up front, right? Okay. I've never had a six-pack. Have you had a six-pack? Uh, well, I just purchased one, but I've not uh, uh, yes. developed one. No, that's the standard yes. response. I, I've, I I've consumed a six-pack in my life right. or two, uh, yeah. but, but in terms of possessing one in my abdominal region, it's, it's never happened, and I'm, and I'm comfortable saying that I don't believe it's going to happen. Right. A friend of mine is fond of saying that he has one, it's just hidden. Uh, so it's there. He's just carefully layered uh, skin over top of it and um, and fat, uh, so that other people don't feel bad That's about it. Right. He's, he's just not being showy about it. He yeah, is, yeah. So tell me about Little Victories: Perfect Rules for Imperfect Living. There's a, a, a quotation in the beginning of it that I, I rather like. It goes, "I believe that happiness is derived less from significant single accomplishment than it is from a series of successful daily maneuvers." Well, that's uh, nice of you to say. I mean, the idea of this, <clears throat> excuse me, the beginning of this book really began as kind of a lark. You know, I'd been writing for the Wall Street Journal for a couple of years, and I'd been doing these rules columns uh, around the holidays, and one of them was the rules of Thanksgiving touch football, and it was kind of a tongue-in-cheek look at that, you know, crazy, comical Thanksgiving family game that a lot of us play. And so from that, uh, I started doing some other ones around Christmas, around the Super Bowl, 4th of July, and we had had a conversation about maybe compiling them into a book, but I felt, well, why not start from scratch and do a whole life guide? And like a lot of folks, you know, I'm going through the airport and you always see those books that say that, you know, it's the 20 minute work week or the 13 exercises that'll make you lose 13 pounds. And I just was always cracked up at kind of the big promises of the advice books that you see out there and up atop the bestseller list. And so I kind of wanted to poke a little fun at that. And the weird thing that happened was that, so I, you, there was a, a genuine idea at the core of it, which is what you alluded to that, you know, we, we, we focus a lot on the sort of big life accomplishments, whether it's, you know, going to school or starting a family, buying a home, having children, but, Oftentimes, the real satisfying parts of life are just the daily mundane moments, whether it's being able to just get out the door with your kids without anybody crying. And I don't mean just the kids. I mean me, <laughs> uh, you know, putting on some uh, a comfortable pair of pants before two o'clock on a Saturday. If you can do that, getting to the airport and not wanting to, you know, cry in line, you know, any of those kinds of things, you know, those little victories, I think. You know, they're underrated in terms of, um, you know, a daily joy. And the weird thing that happened along the process of making this book, it sort of began as this, you know, funny misadventure, but something really serious happened, which is my father was diagnosed with cancer. And, and you know, 
his life really did become about trying to get those little daily victories, whether it was a conversation or going for a walk or getting in the car and going for a car ride, talking to his grandchildren, um, getting to go out to dinner, you know, little things. And, you know, what began again as this sort of silly endeavor really took on this added weight. And I really sort of began to believe very, very strongly in this idea. Mm -hmm. Now, tell me about trying to balance those things because on the one hand you know you're you're defining little victories as the absence of crying it seems like in large measure you know not crying <laughs> with the children not crying at the airport but on the other hand you've got you know a sick dad and that's a really different moment uh that you know it's it's very difficult for a lot of people to process uh how did you work those two together in this book sure i mean you know i i mean i it sounds like what you're asking is you know, how do you sort of weave the sort of silly mundane aspect to, to what is, you know, for all of us, a, a rather sort of heavy life moment? Right. I, you know, I, I I try to do it as best as I can and try to do it, you know, with what has always sort of guided me professionally as a columnist, which is to just to be nakedly honest all the time and just be as truthful I and mean, just be 100% truthful about what that experience is like. And, you know, with regard to my dad, uh, you know, my dad was a mentor to me. He was somebody that, you know, obviously loomed large in my life, as dads often do. But he was also just a regular guy. And, and, and um, you know, in that experience of watching what the, you know, you know last months and, uh, of his life was like, and, you know, from my own experience, uh, you know, I had uh, cancer myself about 16 years ago. Um, you realize in the throes of something, and, and I don't want to compare for one moment what my dad went through to what I went through, which was, you know, comparatively really, really lucky and really, really minor. But, you know, I remember talking to a friend of mine who was a survivor and saying that, you know, the moment you can get back to move, you know, worrying about the silly little things that troubled you before you were diagnosed, that is the sort of definition of recovery. When you can get sort of, your nose had a joint waiting in line at Starbucks or in traffic. I mean, those kinds of things are for a lot of us, a, represent a, a return to normalcy. And so with my dad, you know, every conversation at a hospital was a heavy conversation. Right. Every conversation with us had the potential to be a heavy conversation, but oftentimes the things that brought him great satisfaction were the kinds of conversations that he was able to have before he was diagnosed. So, you know, arguing about the Red Sox baseball, arguing about college football, arguing about, uh, you know, politics, those kinds of things, those little minor little victories took on a greater importance than ever. You know, you said, I'd like to go back to what you said at the beginning of this, that um, you were nakedly honest or that as a columnist, you've, that's your goal to be nakedly honest. And when you're writing a book like this, what all does that constitute for you? I mean, how nakedly honest are you a could you be about not only just the family, but um, having, like you said, your dad being sick in the hospital, there are times you think, okay, this can't go in the book because it's too painful for me to write, to, to remember, to, to dredge back up. Yeah. I mean, let me start by addressing the sort of calmness aspect of it. And as it relates to the book, I mean, as somebody who writes a, a sports column, uh, the only compass I have personally, because, you know, I, I, I is only it's just sort of my personal truth and what I 
what my genuine, honest feeling is about what I'm viewing, what I'm witnessing, what I'm writing about. You know, I try to never sort of take on a position or adopt a pose or anything like that that I don't feel 100% honest about. Um, and so the same goes to my sort of interpretation of what happened in my life and what happened in people around me, like my, my father's uh, uh, final year. Um, you know, everything that's in there is 100% representative of how I felt. I don't think I encountered anything along the way that I wasn't, that I was reluctant to put into the book. You know, of course you want, you know, cause I'm, you know, I'm not operating in a vacuum here alongside me are, you know, my wife and my children and my mother and my brother who are there uh, with me in my mother's case, you know, more, far more intimately than I was. Uh, and you wanted to sort of feel, I, wa- I wanted them to read it and feel that it was accurate and representative of what they experienced as well. Uh, and I know it is, uh, but but I can't imagine any other environment. I can't imagine, you know, that's the kind of writer I want to be. I want people to pick this up, and even though if it where they live and how they live and who their family, you know, I, I want them to be able to see aspects of their own life and relate to it, because that's the kind of person and writer I want to be. That's what I aspire to. Okay, that sounds great. Let's then get into just a little bit of that. Tell me about a couple of the rules that you've got, some of the perfect rules you have for imperfect living. What are some of the favorite ones that you've been able to uh, to to give to people? For example, I mean, I have children, and I would think that some, uh, if I had devised perfect rules, I would be feel bad if I didn't share them with my children on a daily basis. Like, you know, a clean room <laughs> is a happy parent. That kind of rule. Do you have something like that that has brought you joy? Well, man, I mean, I don't know how old your children are, but but the clean room discussion, we're not even there yet. I mean, the <laughs> idea that they can actually uh, do anything cleanly, uh, we're not we're not even in that uh, hemisphere yet. But uh, <laughs> and how old are the children? My children are, we have one on the verge of three and one on the verge of one. So we are early days here, chapter one. But I can tell you uh, our dining out strategy is to to order the check and order the meal and the check as soon as we sit down. You know, Mm -hmm. it's like bringing a three-year-old and a one-year-old into a restaurant is like walking in with like your mesh bag full of vampire bats and just releasing it all over the restaurant. I mean, we're trying to get out of there as quickly as possible. But if I think of like one rule in there, which uh, people seem to get a kick out of, and I, I try to get, and, and, and I feel is, is very reflective of my own personal experience. It's, it's sort of the, the abandonment of trying to be cool. Now, we all try to be cool. I mean, no one is immune from the temptation or the pursuit of cool somewhere in our lives, you know, whether it was when we were very young or when we were teenagers or adulthood or maybe still now. I'm sure there are moments when all of us want to try to be cool. But I just feel like it is this pursuit that is just so obsessive and, and so beyond reach. And I always find it very funny. You know, I came to New York City as an outsider. I had this outsider's perception of what New York was of being this you know, incredible, uh, uh, you know, a mecca of coolness. But the fact that it is, you get to a place where you're supposedly going to be cool, and then you find out that that place isn't cool anymore, and there's always something cooler down the road. And it just seems like this spiral of nonsense. And I think if you sort of get more comfortable in your own skin, and I think that's something, you know, I don't know what your experience has been like, but I feel as I've gotten older, one of the things I do really like about getting older is, feeling more connected and comfortable with who I am as a person. And I am 
100% ready to admit this live to you on the air that I am not cool. Mm-hmm. I probably never have been. And I'm not trying to say that in such a way to make myself sound cool. Yeah. I uh, can give uh, maybe a small bit of uh, advice for you. Maybe it's the next book, More Perfect Rules, okay. is that uh, your children will begin to help you understand how cool you are not. Um, and and maybe <laughs> yeah. very helpful in pointing out to you that um, if you're wearing, you know, a shirt that you bought five years ago that still fits and looks okay and you got a good deal on, it doesn't matter. It's not, it's not cool. Um, because I think, you know, a good purchase on a shirt makes it cool, but this is not apparently the litmus test for the young. <laughs> I, I would, I would happily transcribe that into little victories too right now. That all sounds very wise. Yeah. I could give you that little victories, a couple of those, and then major defeats. That would be <laughs> really what else. So, um, the, the one, Last thing I wanted to ask you about is uh, you've profiled Zach Galifianakis, Johnny Knoxville, Lindsay Lohan. How do you approach people who've been in the public eye so frequently and make it a new experience for your readers? What's the the trick that you look for, the secret? I mean, with the Lindsay Lohan piece, um, she seemed – you were asking questions and she seemed to – have answers that may or may not have had much to do with the questions. <laughs> so, um, you know, everybody's different, of course. And, you know, I, I, I do a trick that I think a lot of people who do these kinds of stories do, which is that you want to read virtually everything that's ever been written about somebody. In which case, somebody like Lindsay Lohan, it's quite a heap of uh, paperwork, but mm-hmm. you really do want to get uh, a sense of questions. They've been asked a ton and not sort of enter into these uh, air spaces that they have talked and talked and talked themselves to death and have just sort of, you know, their classic stories and cliches to spat at you. You want to try to find new territory. You want to find some ground that they've not covered before. Um, I find that's always really helpful. Um, And then, you know, quite honestly, um, you know, trying to make them comfortable uh, as possible and not sort of put them, you know, on the back foot immediately. You know, I think that's sort of like, uh, you know, when you go to the dentist's office and, you know, the dentist starts with the gentle cleaning, you know, <laughs> you don't want to go right in for the hard stuff right away. Um, and, you know, in every case is different, of course, but, um, you know, I think building a certain comfort level with somebody I think is important. And then, uh, you know, hopefully they give you something revealing and they tell you something that they haven't told anyone before and express themselves differently. Um, if nothing else, uh, you want to, I feel, I feel that the fundamental obligation of a story like that, because let's face it, you know, these aren't, this isn't the Pentagon papers. These aren't, you know, Pulitzer winning uh, exposés. Uh, you really want to address the question of, you know, what's it like to go sit and have a beer with Zach Galifianakis or Johnny Knoxville or have a glass of uh, water with Lindsay Lohan? Although I think back then it was margaritas. I can't remember. That's great advice for people working uh, maybe their way into something like that. What was the most unusual experience you've had with somebody you went in and you thought, okay, I'll keep them on the, you know, not on their their back foot, and um, it turned into something you really didn't expect? I, I have to say I was a little surprised by the playfulness of the Lindsay Lohan uh, exchange. She seemed yeah. more willing to go into the playful mode than I thought she might have been. So, is there that something- might have been the margaritas? I don't know. <laughs> I can't speak for that. Uh, you know, what was the most unusual? Um, you know, you mentioned the Johnny Knoxville thing. Uh, Johnny Knoxville, 
you know, you often suggest, well, let's go for a drink, let's go get something to eat, let's go for a walk, whatever. And Johnny Knoxville, what he wanted to do was get a six pack. Here we are talking about our six packs again. Mm-hmm. He wanted to get a six pack and just sit on the curb in downtown New York and just drink the six pack. And that's how he wanted to do the interview. I mean, this was out of the height of his jackass powers and, and he was very recognizable. He dressed exactly like Johnny Knoxville you've seen on TV, flinging himself into walls. Uh, and that's how he wanted to go. Um, and that was really fun because first of all, it was his idea that made him comfortable, but also, you know, you have this opportunity to see this person interact with their loving public. And so, you know, you would see people walk by on the sidewalk and double take and say, Oh, that guy looks exactly like Johnny. Oh, wait, it is Johnny Knoxville. And mm-hmm. you know, he's a guy who's pretty comfortable in his own skin. And, you know, so you got to sort of see that too, which I felt was really great. And just another, um, circumstance which is you know completely at the other end of the spectrum you know i grew up worshiping uh david letterman you know grew up you know with the 1230 show at nbc and loved it and just couldn't think of anybody who was sort of more important to my development of my sense of humor and got to interview him several years ago uh and you know that he doesn't talk terribly often you know he didn't really make that a habit when he was doing his show and I talked to him once on the telephone for about an hour, an hour and a half, and it went well. And then I met him in New York in the city, and here he comes, like, walking up in a T-shirt and cargo shorts and just by himself. And, you know, he it, it almost had this sort of um, – his ability to sort of blend into the wo- woodwork. You know, had he walked out there in a suit and a tie and, you know, looking like he was on the Ed Sullivan stage, it would have been completely different. But this guy's ability, you know, one of the most recognizable faces – in America, his ability to sort of walk through the world that way was really cool. Mm-hmm. That sounds like a cool interview. And the interview went really well after that, or how did the... Uh... Yeah, you know, the funny thing is, it's like, again, he doesn't... He was not somebody who felt terribly comfortable talking to the press all the time. But the funny part of it was that when he did talk to the press, on the rare occasions he did, he gave a great interview. And I think it was partly born out of the fact that he felt very obligated to the fact that if he was going to be asking people questions for a living and wanting them to be truthful, if he was going to do that for a living, then on the occasion that he decided to answer questions, he was going to be truthful too. And I had to respect that. Yeah, that's a, that's a great story. Jason Gay, I thank you very much for talking to me today and very much looking forward to your visit to the Thurber House on Thursday, November 19th. I can't wait. Can't wait. You can't can wait. Go upstairs and see uh, where the bedroom was, where the ghosts got in, and all kinds of great things like that at the Thurber House uh, to follow in James Thurber's frightened footsteps. I'm incredibly honored and I can't wait to get to Columbus. For more information from my guests, visit www.crafttheshow.com. This is Doug Dangler. Until next time, be creative.